Welcome to Visionaries Global Media, your number one source for podcasting entertainment. Visionaries Global Media, envisioning excellence on a global scale. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the SJP Wrestling Podcast. As always, thank you very, very much for pressing play or download or however you access your podcasts. Um, On today's show, we are joined by former NWA, Jim Crockett Promotions and WCW wrestler Randy Hogan. Randy has some absolutely fascinating stories about working with the likes of Vader, the Road Warriors, Sting and so on. And Randy and I also discuss modern day wrestling, having a little chat about AEW, NXT and the modern product in general and his thoughts on current day wrestling. And by the time you hear this uh, episode 16 today of, of this show, you will hopefully have also heard episode one of a new show I'm working on with a friend of the show, Mags, called Chain Wrestling. Mags and I had a great time recording that first episode, looking at an absolutely ridiculous match from WCW um, in the year 2000, a straight jacket steel cage match, absolute nonsense, but a funny look back at some silly wrestling. You can find out more about Chain Wrestling, the new show hosted by Mags and myself, uh, by looking it up on Twitter, at chain underscore wrestling there you'll be able to find links to the show on various platforms as well as the weekly poll deciding on the topic or match me and mags are going to discuss the following week which is completely in the hands of you people listening we both suggest one each that links in with the previous show and you get to decide which one we cover Um, also on the topic of socials you can find this show on twitter and facebook and instagram at SJP Wrestling Pod. Uh, chuck us a follow there and let us know what you think of the new show, Chain Wrestling, with Mags and I, and of the topics that we're covering on the SJP Wrestling Podcast today. And for future episodes, if anyone has any suggestions or ideas or just any feedback in general, I'd love to hear from you all. I think that covers everything I need to tell people, but I mean, I'm fairly certain I've forgotten something I normally do, but never mind, it will hold for now. Um, so we'll get on with today's interview. A brilliant discussion, a brilliant conversation with former WCW talent, Randy Hogan. Once again, thank you for listening, and I'll speak to you soon. Mr. Randy Hogan, how are we doing, sir? We are absolutely wonderful down here in Florida. How you doing over there across the pond? Well, it's a bit cold and a bit grey and a bit wet and a bit miserable oh, at the moment. So, but that's I'm not, sorry. Oh, it's kind of standard for England, I think, isn't it? <laughs> it's 80 degrees here today. A little uh, okay. rainy, but uh, still, uh, still sunny. It's supposed to be this way all week. So, ah, uh, right. I think we've actually been forecast snow soon. So. Are you still in lockdown over there? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, uh, we've got it. We've got into a second lockdown. It's um, 
yeah, when basically like loads of people are not allowed to go to work, um, all the but the bars and uh, certain businesses are all shut again. Yeah, so it's oh. our it's our second. We came out for a while and then cases started to rise again. So we've been locked down again until December. So how we had that down you? here. Yeah, we had it down here, and then they opened everything up, and now well, everything is on the rise again. So our positivity rate, which is bad, is almost eight percent. And uh, it started out that way up in New York, you know, where everything really hit at first, and we were fine down. Then all the northerners from New York come on down here to Florida and spread it to us. So now we're uh, we're probably looking at another uh, some type of a lockdown pretty soon ourselves. But right now, the bars, the restaurants are all uh, open with uh, social distancing and uh, yeah. And uh, I think what's going to happen next with our new president coming in January, I think we're going to have a mandatory mask. Anytime you're out in public, you're going to have to at least be wearing a mask. So, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of how it is here at the moment for a lot of things. Like, uh, uh, I use public transport to get to and from work, and everyone has mm-hmm. to have a mask on there, and they're only allowed to take a certain number of people on the bus and all this sort of really very, very limited. But it's for, it's yes. for a good reason, isn't it? So. Yes. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, should we uh, should we get on and talk some wrestling, sir? Hey, that's what we're here for. Brother. <laughs> okay. I mean, basically, I, I'd just like to sort of have a little a little discussion, a little run through, uh, talk about your memories and your career in general, and some fantastic stories I know you have. Um, if I uh, if I'm correct in my thinking, was it in Detroit you grew up and started watching wrestling there? Absolutely. As a as a kid, a little town called Hazel Park, which was just about two miles outside of the Detroit city limits. Okay. Uh, my grandparents were just big fans. So when I was, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old, uh, they kind of got me hooked watching it on TV. Now my grandparents believed every last thing. Wrestling is real. Yeah. The Sheik is from Syria, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Of course, my parents just kind of shook their head. They, they, you know, that fake crap, as they said. <laughs> uh, but I, I just loved it, and here I am now. You know, sixty years later, I'm still a bigger fan now as I was back then. So, they would take me to the to the matches when they come in town, and brought up on guys like I said, the original Sheik and Dick the Bruiser, mm-hmm. uh, Killer Kowalski, and Bobo Brazil, and just a plethora of people like that back then um they were affiliated still i believe with uh with the nwa okay um, but uh they used to share talents like even in detroit where the, the the sheik was the main promoter and everything um you had bruno san martino you know from new york who would come through i saw him i saw buddy rogers oh wow I saw, um pat o'connor um Gorgeous George, when I was a little kid, I even saw him. He had a, a male valet that used to throw gold hairpins out to the audience. And, he'd, <laughs> and he would walk around with a pump sprayer, and he would spray the ring with perfume. Ah, uh, okay. That, that yeah. was all the Gorgeous George. Oh, him. fantastic. So, so the, those memories I, I still have, you know. Yeah. I remember my grandparents laughing years later where uh, – I'd be, I'd be watching, and then I'd cover my face, and I'd say, are they blooding yet? <laughs> yeah, I'm bleeding. Are they blooding yep. yet? And, 
it, it was just it was totally totally different back then. You know, you had the big smoky filled arenas, mm-hmm. and they were jam packed, and uh, and people actually used to dress up just like in in boxing of that. You know, they would there would be uh, women in, in dresses, and sometimes men in suits and ties, and oh, it was fantastic. a big thing. Yeah, yeah, I've seen pictures of of that kind of era, maybe some, some, some video clips, but they're kind of limited, aren't they? And, um, yeah. Dick, the bruiser, for example, stands out to me a great deal. Like any footage I've seen of him, absolutely fantastic. He was wonderful. He was big. He was gruff. He always had a cigar in his mouth, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was a mainstay up there. You know, I, it's funny because it was probably, I don't know, probably up till maybe, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I didn't realize that the Sheik was actually the promoter. Dick DeBruce and Wilbur Snyder were partners. The association ran the uh, the area, I believe, out in, the, in Minnesota and areas like that, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't realize the connection in a lot of those. Yeah. And I really believe the Sheik was from Syria <laughs> until uh, I he, realized. <laughs> he was a he scary was, fellow, wasn't he, as well? But a genius, yeah. You know? Just a, a genius, and of course, through him, Coven's nephew Sabu. You know, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, Sabu. Uh, yeah, but that was his real life nephew, mm. and uh, Sabu just picked up on that same uh, same thing. But uh, they're all Detroit born breeders. And <laughs> <laughs> Sabu went on to have some sort of weird obsession with throwing himself through tables, didn't he? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> a slightly slightly different sort of way of, appro- of, of approaching things. But there we go. Um, so, I mean, you, you say that you're, you're in Detroit, you're watching lots of matches with your grandparents and, and seeing all these these wonderful names, Bobo Brazil and Killer Kowalski and so on, um, in, in those formative years. That's a great sort of grinding to have, I think, with those names you're watching because of the talent on display. How, how, how much further on um, in your life did you decide, I want to give this a go? And I believe it was a chance meeting... In a, in a hotel or a bar when you were playing um, in, in a band, wasn't it? Man, you do your homework, brother. I try, I try. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was in a band. We used to travel the country for a few years. We used to play a Holiday Inn circuit in southern United States. Okay. And we used to go back on a regular basis to a Holiday Inn in Columbus, Georgia. Columbus, Georgia had uh, TV taping. This back in the territory days, of course, TV tapings at the Columbus Auditorium every Wednesday. And um, the wrestlers used to stay at the Holiday Inn. Now, here, I'm, I'm just a fan. I don't know what's real, what's fake. I don't know nothing. Mm-hmm. Except I see these guys because big fan, read all the magazines. There was no internet, but we used to have the dirt sheets um, that came out. You know, it was yep. a subscription, and they'd send it to you on a weekly basis with updates and results and stuff. Yeah, a lot of them are still going now, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, so, good uh, stuff, yeah. So, so I knew all these guys, you know. So we're in there, and uh, uh, some of the wrestlers, Ted and Jerry Oates, owned a gym in Columbus. And the Continental Lover, Eddie Mansfield, who uh, went on, he was one of the first ones to go on television and expose things in the business. Right, 2020 okay. and that. Um, anyways, he lived in Columbus. He was very big at the time. So Wednesday night after TV taping, they would, you know, come in. They Most of them come into the lounge. So I'm just sitting there playing, and all of a sudden I see 
Eddie Mansfield, Austin Idol, uh, Wahoo McDaniel. They're all walking in the bar. Why? So I'm like a kid in a candy shop. I'm so <laughs> nervous. So on a break, of course, I went up and just said hello to them, not to bug them or nothing. And then they would come in, you know, on a nightly basis because we worked like Wednesday through, I don't know, Saturdays or something. So uh, um, I got to know Eddie, who lived in town. He'd, he'd come over and actually uh, take advantage of me staying at the Holiday Inn so he could come use the pool and lay by the pool and work on his suntan. Right. So I, I started talking to him and, and just got to know him on a personal level. Level, uh, again, kayfabe was alive. You know, he didn't talk any of the inner goings or anything of, of wrestling. He totally avoided that. So it was more of a of a personal relationship that we got going. So, uh, like I said, Jerry and Ted Oates, who were big in in Japan and the southern states, um, uh, Jerry had a gym there, and the wrestlers used to work out there. And um, so I went with Eddie and just started working at the gym, lifting weights. Right. And um, so I got to know, of course, Jerry Oates. I joined the gym and everything. Um, I was in the restaurant business after that and ended up down in Florida. And the restaurant uh, was closing. Now, at this point, I'm, oh, I don't know, I was in my early 30s, I guess. And I said, still, you know, I wonder what's real and what's fake with this wrestling mm-hmm. stuff. I always wondered. So, what's so, sorry to interrupt? What sort of uh, what sort of time frame would that be? What sort of year would that be? 81, 82 ish, or something? Well, like that? let me see. 50, 60, 70, 81, 82, uh, 82, 83 ish. Okay. Like that. Yeah. Early to mid 80s. So, I, I called. Uh, I kept in touch with Eddie Mansfield as he was traveling the country and that. He, him and Scott Casey had a big thing out in all around Texas and Los Angeles and that. And I just kept in touch. So I called Jerry Oates at his gym. I said, Jerry, do you know anybody down here in Florida that trains wrestlers? He says, well, the only one I know is Hiro Matsuda. Uh, okay. uh, he trained Lex Luger. He trained Hulk Hogan. Mm-hmm. He worked very closely with the... Uh, uh, with Eddie Graham and Mike Graham and Steve Kern um, and guys like that. He said, but, you know, he's very selective who he takes. He's very pricey. Da, da, da. He said, but, you know, I train guys up here. And I knew he trained some people. So back and forth, we negotiated. And next thing I knew, I was packing up everything I had in uh, Florida into my car, drove up to Columbus, Georgia, um, Got a got a job managing a restaurant, which actually paid me through wrestling school. Oh, okay. So I, I went to, to Jerry, and, and Jerry had an aerobics room in the back of his gym. Um, no ring or anything, just mats. So that's how I started learning. I didn't learn in a ring. I learned on a cement floor with a little bit of a pad on it. Right. Um, the, the, the advantage of that is you learn how to take a bump. You learn mm. how to fall. Because if you fall on cement the wrong way, it really hurts. Yeah, definitely. So by the time we learned some the basic mat wrestling um, and learned to take uh, the basic bumps on a hard floor, by the time I finally got into a ring, it was like a waterbed. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, it was. So uh, anyway, so we were training one day and learning to do leapfrogs. You know, the guy jumped, mm-hmm. you know, leapfrogs. Yep. And I came down, I guess, similar to what a basketball player would do on the side of my ankle. 
Oh, okay. It just tore it out. Mm-hmm. The, the ligaments and everything so, can just pop, can't they? Everything, everything, yeah. yeah. So, and really, I, I pretty much uh, self-medicated it. You know, no doctors or nothing back then. You had to be tough. Back then, it was totally different getting in the business. The mm. first month or two of training, they killed you. They yeah. wanted to make sure you were tough enough to take it. Because if you whined and cried and couldn't take a little bit of this, they know you're not going to make it in the business, and why waste your time, or why waste their time? Yeah, so that's how I looked yeah. at it. So anyways, I did that uh, just, I don't know, maybe a couple of months in. And of course, I couldn't do anything for a few months, so I took it off, and I says, wow, this is, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do now. So I just worked, 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 and in the meantime, Jerry Oates' brother, Ted, opened a wrestling school. Same town, just a few miles away. And he had a ring and a real little storefront and everything. Uh, so I said, well, let me go back. So it was probably four months or so later, at least. And I had all the best braces and everything else I could have on my ankle. And I went and talked to Ted. And he said, well, yeah, you know, come back. You, know, you paid your money. Yeah. <laughs> so I started training again. Um now, the Oats went through, I'm trying to think of some of the, the, a lot of guys that went to Japan. I guess the, the most famous person that they trained, which was in my time, was Marty Gennetti. Right, okay, yeah. Of, of, of the Rockers, yeah. yeah. He was an alumni. So, anyways, I went through the training and everything with Ted. Because, remember, all I wanted to do, I wanted to know what was real and what was fake. I didn't mm-hmm. want to be a wrestler. I just wanted to know what was real, what was fake. Yeah, okay. So, so with, with regards to that, then, you, you, you're going to your first few training sessions. Um, yes. I mean, uh, I like you, to, Yeah, I have you got, like, fun. any nerves walking in, or...? Oh, so the first time I actually walked into Ted's school, we mm-hmm. had a real ring. First time I stepped in a ring, I teared up. Oh, it just brought okay. all the memories back to my grandparents, yeah. to everything, to this day, how proud they would have been just at that point, you know? I can imagine. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I went through the training anyways, and I trained for about 13 months, over a year. And uh, finally, we had a like a student's match. It was a fundraiser for the police athletic league for the kids in that. And uh, we just wrestled each other in a regular, a regular setting, not at the school, in an arena. And had a ball. It was it was it was fun. And I says, "Wow, I know what's real. I know what's fake." So I thought. Right. I said. <laughs> I said. So I'm done. That, that's good enough. That's all I wanted. So I went about my business. Still going to the wrestling every Wednesday night at the auditorium there in Columbus. Went in one day and guy I trained with was putting up the ring. I said, "Bill, what you doing?" He says, "Well, they rent the ring for me when they're doing TV tapings." And uh, he said, uh, you know, to me, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm not doing anything. He said, well, I'm wrestling in this little bar up in North Georgia. He says, why don't you come watch me sometime? I said, I'd love to. So now I'm single at the time, and I can go wherever I want to go. He said, bring your stuff. And I said, no, I'm not going to bring my stuff because I haven't been in the ring. I never really had a real match other than Mm -hmm. this little three-minute squash I had as an exhibition thing. So I went with him, went with him, and then one time I took my bag with me, and somebody didn't show up at this little bar, and you know you got a drunk sitting in the pub and and uh, and laughing maybe thirty people, you know. So somebody didn't show up. So the promoter guy says, "Bill, does your buddy want to 
want to work. Uh, okay. Bill says, sure you will. <laughs> so that's how it started. Now, I've always had the mustache since I was like 18 years old. The hair, it was dark brown. Mm-hmm. My color yours. <laughs> and uh, There's plenty of gray in this one. So that- <laughs> well, yeah. yeah that. So uh, he said, okay, well, what's your name? Well, my dad's name was Frank. So I said, uh, Randy Franklin. So he said, okay, Randy Franklin. He said, you're going to wrestle this guy named the animal. And he's going to go over. And I says, okay. So I go back to the locker room. Bill, I said, Bill, you know, I'm wrestling this guy's animal. And he's going to go over. What does that mean? Does that mean he's going over the top rope? I'm going over the top. He says, no, dummy. Going over means he's going to win. That's how green I was. That's mm-hmm. how I thought I knew everything, but I didn't even know that. So, anyways, I went and went through the match. Um, a lot of these guys were just backyard wrestlers, I guess, as we call them now, not really trained. Okay. So when somebody came in there that actually had training and knew mat wrestling as well as some of the other stuff, good. So the promoter says, hey, good, can you come back next week? He says, I'll pay you. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> My first payoff, $15. Yep. Now, I drove three hours there, three hours back, gas, food, for a $15 payoff. That's what wow. it was back then. And I was proud to get it. So he says, you know, he says, you look a little bit like this Hulk Hogan, who was just, Hulkamania was just getting started. So we're going to call you Hal Hogan. And I thought about it, and I said, well, okay, but can we use Randy instead of Hal? Because I won't know, you know, who the hell they're talking about. So uh, he says, okay, you're going to be Randy Hogan. You're going to be his cousin or something. I said, okay, whatever you want, you know. Pin me, pay me, that type of an attitude. So uh, that's how Randy Hogan got started. This little bar with a $15 payoff. Guy says, you look like this Hulk Hogan guy. So we're going to call you Hogan. So I went home all excited, told my girlfriend, you need to bleach my hair. So I bleached my hair, my mustache, my eyebrow. Now it's all natural. You know, it's all natural gray in that. But uh, so I went home, bleached everything else and uh, always had a tan. And, of course, was in shape back then. Um, So that's how the whole thing got started. And. You know, common courtesy, you work with other guys and you go see them working somewhere on a weekend and they introduce you to the promoter and you say, if you could ever use me, you know, let me know. And they say, well, Mm -hmm. why don't you come back next week? I'll put you on, see how you look. And it goes up. So because of that and because of the gimmick and because I could wrestle, I was moving up the ladder a little bit. Yeah, so I was making big money, baby. I was making like $30 a match now. Hey, that's okay? double, double the shot. That's right. That's right. That was big money. So I got where car. would that have been then? Sorry, where would that have been? Because you, you worked in sort still, of territory days like around Alabama, Georgia. Still in Georgia. Doing little. Still in Georgia. Okay. Now you call it indie shows. Back there in the mm-hmm. outlaw shows. Right. Yep. So we just did just, just Saturday afternoon, Saturday night stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. So uh, I worked on a show that uh, used to bring in a bigger name for the main event. One show they do a month. And they brought in a guy from Alabama called um, Action Mike Jackson. Now, Mike was on TV every week, WTBS, WCW, NWA, (coughs) self-proclaimed Alabama junior heavyweight champion for about 40 years. In fact, he was on AEW. Uh, oh, maybe six weeks ago in a match. 
okay. he's like 70 years old and he could go with them kids. It wow. was great. So, uh, so anyways, he was on there and I got talking to him. I was in the semi main event, I think. And I said, Mike, I said, how do you get on TV? And he said, well, he says, I bring up guys to do talent, you know, jobbers at the time they called us jobbers or enhancement or star makers or whatever you want to call us. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't care. Call me what you want. Just pin me and pay me. <laughs> so we went up and uh, <clears throat> same story as the bar. He said, you know, just come with me a couple of times. Bring your stuff. I can't guarantee you nothing. So I went up. They were short a guy one day at TV taping up in Atlanta. And J.J. Dillon went to Mike and said, Mike, you got any boys out there want to work? And Mike says, yeah. So he says, you know, Randy, you want to work? I says, sure. And I was a little better. Again, I had maybe six or seven matches under my belt. That was okay. it. Here I am. So I'm walking in the locker room. And I'm sitting down. And all your jobbers are like little mice in the corner, you know. And you and you look in the same room, and you got Dusty Rhodes, Ricky Steamboat, um, uh, and you had Larry Zabisco, the Midnight Express, Paulie wow. Dangerously, Heyman at the time, you know. And I just wanted to jump up and give everybody's autograph. I mean, again, I was a bigger fan than I was. I, I still wasn't hooked on the wrestling as much. So I'm wrestling my very first TV match against the Warlord and the Barbarian. And they were had Paul Jones, I think, was their manager at the time. So uh, first thing that happened to me, the Warlord, who's about probably six, 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 seven, you know, He's a big he fella. Pressed, pressed <laughs> me over his head. Yeah. So here I'm like eight or nine feet in the air. And he tipped he, to, to drop me on my back. Scared to death. It felt like it was forever till I hit the mat. But I hit the mat and I landed, well, the way you're supposed to, landed perfectly. I just wanted to jump up and say, yes, that was wonderful. (laughs) But, you know, I sold it in that. Barbarian comes in, shoots me off the ropes. Baboo. Now, anytime you shoot somebody in or there's an element of risk or something, you shoot the guy off, you say, elbow, drop kick, whatever. You know, just very brief. So I get baboo. That's a what? Now again, I'm full of full of adrenaline. First time on TV, excited as hell. So I'm going 100 miles an hour. When he threw me off into the ropes, I went hit them ropes, and I come off full force, not knowing what to expect. Next thing, I got a size 15 right in my face. Oh, straight. Broke, broke <laughs> my nose. Blood go squirting. This is on TV. So. uh Back in the locker room, it came out. What he did was he was saying "big boot." You know, he's right. I think Tongan, like Samoan, very mm-hmm. strong accent. I didn't know what he was saying. Babu. He was saying "big boot." Watch for the boot. Well, I didn't watch for nothing, and I got a boot in the face. So <laughs> it, 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 was, it was my fault. So but I guess they took, though, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. So then I guess JJ Dillon took pity on me and said, uh, "Hogan, can you come back next week?" I said, "Sure." So that's how the WCW thing started. The more you're there, the more you get to know the the big name guys. Mm-hmm. Um, certain ones like to work with you for whatever. You know, if there was somebody who was uh, uh, like the Road Warriors or Vader or somebody who was a big brute, they wanted a piece of meat they could throw around. And luckily, I could pretty much take a bump, take a fall from any position. I didn't care. I was about maybe 
225 or so, not very big at the time for these guys. So they could pick me up, throw me like a rag doll. I didn't care. You know, I was just happy mm. to be there. Yeah, I witnessed some of that this morning, actually. I was, I was watching some of your matches back today. And yeah, there, was, um, there was even simple, something simple. There was there was one bump, I believe it was against uh, Sting in 88. It was a match I watched. And you, you went over the top rope, but then went from the apron to the floor. Something relatively straightforward, but you made it look so so impactful. So, and it made Sting look a million dollars. It made him look incredible. Well, that that was our job. And that goes back to what they call us. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of guys are offended to be categorized as a jobber. That's a bad word, you know. Now, it doesn't bother me. We all have jobs. We all go to work every day. We get paid to do our job. So isn't everybody a jobber? I mean, to me, that's what a jobber is. Mm. They call us enhancement. Well, that was our job was to enhance whatever it is the other guys. If it was Vader, Road Warriors, these big guys that we were piece of meat, again, it's our job to make it look like they are just totally monsters, invincible. So we had very little, if any, offense. Mm -hmm. We go in there, we get jobbed out, as they say. Yep, but that's our job, and yet we could be in there with somebody like a, uh, oh, a, a, a Brad Armstrong or a Ricky Steamboat or somebody who is a technical wrestler that they want to show off their wrestling skills. Then they wanted guys like us that actually could wrestle. You know, could go hold and hold and do some reversals and just some basic stuff. Yeah. And did you did you work with Steamboat much? No. 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 I did just. Use that name because he oh, was. Oh, yeah, of course. Right? I understand, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brad Armstrong. Okay, Brad Armstrong. Oh, yeah. One. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, a lot of the, any of the, the, any of the baby face, the technical guys mm-hmm. that, that wrestled, um, Sting was right in the middle. Sting would do some wrestling, but basically, especially with TV, you had maybe three, four minutes. You know, he'd throw you in, you'd get the Stinger splash and go down and he'd put you in a scorpion. It was all over with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but still, you sometimes got a little bit of offense. And I think one of them on YouTube, I got to, uh, he was up on the apron and I dropped his throat across the ropes. Of course, he didn't sell it and he came in and squashed me and I went running. I yes, mean, I went with, well, yeah. with a junkyard dog in one and he starts swinging the big old chain he had around, you know. So I go scooting out of the ring, you know, so I'm kind of a, a semi heel at the time. Mm-hmm. But again, um, this was uh, NWA stuff before. Ted Turner bought it and turned it to WCW. Um, So some of the bigger guys like Sting and that, that you get to know and they knew what you could do or what you couldn't do. They would say, Hey, let me work Hogan today. Uh, Jimmy Cornette and the Midnight Express. I worked them more than anybody probably for that very reason. I'd take whatever they wanted, whatever they wanted to do. Uh, Jimmy was, was fun. Uh, Paul Heyman was very good because he had his own faction of, the new Midnight Express, and those two teams were feuding in that. Yeah, I remember. And I was in with both of them. But uh, wonderful, wonderful guys. Um, Vader, the same way. The first time I was working Vader, uh, who's – I don't have an awful lot of good to say about Vader. Well, he's got a bit of a reputation, hasn't he, for taking um, taking liberties. liberties. I mean, I, for taking I liberties. the Road Warriors and the Steiners, I suppose people say the same thing about them occasionally, don't they? The road, but Vader's very much – you hear tales of him being a bit, a well, bit heavy-handed. Said, I'll, I'll give you a difference on the three you just mentioned. Okay. Vader didn't care. Oh, right. 
Bader would just do what he's going to do. And if you got hurt, oh, well. One kid, I guess he broke one kid's back. Yeah. Um, when I worked him, one, I worked him, I think, three times. Anyways, one time, I think it's on TV, too. Um, he does his, uh, his, his Bader splash or monkey splash or whatever it yep. is, you know, pancake yep. shit. Well, he did it like three times, I think, to me. So, and, and they're, they're pretty, pretty stiff. You know, you mm. protect yourself. Now, I wasn't hurt, but I felt it. Um, at the end of the match, after he finally pinned me, uh, the referees, three of them came out from the back, from the locker room to help. They thought I was legit hurt. They come out to help me back to the locker room. Legit thought I was really hurt. And I said, I'm okay. Because one thing you didn't do in the old days, you didn't bitch, you didn't complain, you didn't, you know, no negative whatsoever. That was job security back then. Mm. I don't know if that holds true today, but I suppose everyone's after the same the same roles, aren't they? So if, if you're if you're acting in a negative way, they, they might look at it and go, Okay, well let's give this other fellow a try. You gotta understand it's it's old school mentality. Mm. If you're a crybaby, you know. Don't 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 be in here whining like a little baby. I'm a big tough guy. I make a living doing this. You know, if you're gonna wander around and wimp because you got chopped and you got a little bruise here or there or whatever, you know, we don't want you. And that's why, especially in the old days, um, when they had TV all the time and a lot of different opportunities for guys, a lot of them you'd see only once or twice and they're gone because they couldn't work. Right. You know, they, yep. they couldn't wrestle. They couldn't work. Work meaning. Being able to swim in any pond, you know, you can be a piece of meat or you can be technically sound, whatever it calls for. Um, so guys like myself and George South, Italian Stallion, Gary Corsi, um, uh, there was five or six or seven of us that were mainstays when Ted Turner bought it from Jim Crockett Promotion uh-huh. and turned it from NWA to WCW. They wanted guys that could that could work because they wanted not all simply squash matches so those of us could work carried on Mm -hmm. um i don't know if that's true today you know how that carries on it's it's a whole different ball game but uh but back then you earned the respect of the veterans and they started asking to work with you um they they never opened up you were never their buddy you were never the same league as them Right. But at least they would acknowledge you. There was only three people that really I took to that I felt embraced or respected the roles that we had. One was Jimmy Cornette. Uh-huh. He always had a kind word, a nice word for me, did what he could. Uh, and to this day, I got nothing bad to say about him. You know, now, I don't agree with all his <laughs> things he said. Oh, no, he's, uh, he's, he's quite opinionated, isn't he? But yeah, no, I, I, I'm a big a, fan of all that, yeah. He's old school genius, though. Yes. Another one's Kevin Sullivan. Okay. Kevin Sullivan used to work the gorilla position in that, which means, you know, he would basically tell the guys, okay, go to the ring. You know, he had the headset on, the monitor, the headset on. So, you know, he'd say, you know, Hogan, you're up. Hogan, go. And that was about it. Then one day I worked against him. I looked at the sheet against the varsity club, mm-hmm. which at the time was him and Mike Rotunda. And Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Oh, Steve Williams. What a talent he was. Yeah. Yeah. So I was uh, uh, working them and, and worked against uh, against Kevin. And now Kevin is old school. Kevin's stiff. Okay. He's not going to hurt you. He's protecting you. But you're going to get slapped. You're going to mm-hmm. get hit. You know, there's none of this fake stuff. Yeah. Um, 
So I remember wrestling him, and uh, he did. He used to just jump on your stomach, which was, I don't know, a signature of his. And he'd hang you upside down in the corner. He called it the tree of woe. Right. And he would run across, you know, his little body. He's only, I don't know, about five, five <laughs> or so. Run across full forward and hip first, right? India. You, you hang upside down and you got that. And uh, so I took all that and again went back. And uh, he said, uh, you know, we thank each other for the match. And after that, all of a sudden, he started calling me Randy. I mean, I really felt, wow, what respect. You know, Hogan go and say, hi, Randy. Randy, you're up next. So now it was Randy, you know. So we got to talk a little bit more and more on our bus. In fact, I just talked to him uh, uh, about a week ago. Oh, right. okay. On an interview, yeah, wonderful, and just thanked him for mm. making me feel like part of the locker room, even though he didn't. So he, there was Kevin Sullivan, involved and Jimmy, in a lot of the booking as well, wasn't he? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was Kevin, Jimmy Cornette, and Terry Funk. Terry Funk, yeah. Terry Funk is the only one that came. I told you we were all huddled in one little corner, all little yeah. jobbers. Terry Funk would walk across the room come right up to you, put out his hand, look you right in the eye and say, hello, my name's Terry Funk. What's your name? He says, I am so glad to meet you, son. And that was it. Wow. He actually acknowledged us pieces of meat, us jobbers, us nobodies, you know. That's a class act, it, isn't it? it has. It, I guess it throws me back to my early fan days. Wow. I got an autograph. I got a picture. And now here... Terry Funk, you mm-hmm. know, uh, one of the greatest of all times in my eyes. And here he is saying, introducing himself to me, looking me right in the eye and actually caring or making me feel that way. So those three really made you feel like part of the locker room. That's fantastic, yeah. isn't it? That's, that's, so that's, that's, that's my whole that's beginning brilliant. stuff. So. Yeah. Oh, why? How can I? That's fantastic. I mean, Terry Funk, you know, coming, you know, meeting Dusty Rhodes and so on, and uh, you worked um, Dusty's son Dustin's first the TV, very match. first TV match. He was yeah, obviously in AEW now. Yeah, the Young Broncos. Another little story. Um, they're going over, and again, we just doing what we're told, going through the match, and I mean, they're with mm-hmm. with uh, with Dustin or Gold Dust or wherever everybody knows him as now. <clears throat> and uh, so he, he pushed me in the corner. So I said, okay, so I'm waiting. Okay, what are you going to do with me? You got me in the corner. He's just like standing. He froze. Okay. Because he was all, he was new to this too. Him and Kendall Wyndham getting a push. You know, you got Kendall's dad, Blackjack in the back. You got Dusty in the back watching the match. The kids know it. They know they're going to get a hell if they screw up. So he freezes. And it, was, it wasn't long, maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 seconds or so, but it felt like an hour, a big Yeah, I can second. imagine, yeah. So I started calling Spot. I said, you know, throw me in an elbow. He used to do some of his dad's moves. Dusty used to, like, roll his hands and give the bionic elbow. Yep. That was one of his moves. So I said, then Dustin do that. So he shot me into the turnbuckle the other side, and I took a few steps out, and he gave me the elbow on that. And then uh, he tagged out to Kendall, and Kendall gave me a bulldog headlock, and then I tagged out, and then they pinned my other guy. But anyways, so I didn't think anything about it. So after the match, walking uh, out of the locker room, going down the hallway, and Dusty's coming the other, other way. You know, not looking for me or nothing, just coincidentally. 
and he says, Hoagie. He didn't call me Randy or Hogan. It was Hoagie, you know, like a sandwich. <laughs> Hoagie, thanks for taking care of my boy. Fantastic. Wow, you talk about that was that was right up there with Terry Funk looking me in the yeah, eye and wanting to know my name. So evidently he saw something on the monitor or Dustin, you know, told him whatever when he got back after the match, whatever. I don't know. But uh, it was just great. So now, you know, when I'm on TV, I'm not getting pinned anymore. I'm in tag matches, but they're pinning the other guy. Right. So that was just a little thing of earning your dues, earning your respect to the other guys. Never once did I ever complain or whine about Vader. You mentioned the Road Warriors. Uh-huh. The Road Warriors were different because they didn't know how strong they were. Oh, right. they, okay. hadn't, they came from the AWA. They hadn't been out that long. Um, they just didn't know. So when they hit you, they weren't trying to hurt you. They just didn't know their own strength and how tough and strong mm-hmm. they really were. Um so you can't hold that against them. But again, if you went and complained, it was all over, you know? Yeah. So it went from I was the guy the first time that the uh, animal put him on his shoulders and then Hawk would come off the top with the clothesline, you know, he and animal yep. would flip you over. Their uh, doomsday device, they called it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Pretty yep. easy bum. To now, if you remember any of their matches, the Road Warriors used to rush the ring They'd get both of the opponents. The one guy got thrown out of the ring, and then they'd squash the other one. Mm-hmm. Well, now I was the guy that got thrown out of the ring. I wasn't in there five seconds, you know. They rushed, <laughs> wanted to grab me, throw me through the ropes, and I'd go on the floor, act like I was dead. In the meantime, they'd squash my partner all the time. Again, just a sign of respect of us paying our dues in that. Yeah, and so making us kind of Yeah, those are the high points. So, like I said, Vader was different because he didn't care. The Road Warriors were just so strong; they didn't know, uh, you know, how strong they really were. So they didn't hurt you intentionally. Mm. Steiner, uh, Rick Steiner was was hilarious. Now they were they were like Kevin Sullivan; they were stiff. They weren't going to try to hurt you on person. Uh, you know, on purpose, but just because they were strong and, and kind of crazy at the time, especially Rick, um, you got bumped, you got hurt a little bit. But he didn't. Again, he didn't do it on purpose. Just like the World Warriors. Mm. But uh, Rick Steiner, he was he was he was the nutcase. He was crazy. But, but then you're dealing with some huge, huge people, aren't you? That. You say oh, don't, yeah. don't don't potentially know their own. I mean, Hawk and Animal must have been 260, 270, 280. Animal maybe more. Um, huge guys and and solid muscle too. This is not yeah, Abdul. Yeah. This is not Abdul the butcher. That's you know his elbow. They call it the flying lap because of all the skin that would just slap yeah. on you. We did, you know. I mean, these yeah. guys were big and they were huge. The warlord and the barbarian, same way. You know, the warlord is, is still big to this day. You know, he does. Uh, conventions and stuff, and he's still a, a monster. He's huge. You mentioned um, Abdullah the Butcher there. You worked with him for what several matches, didn't you? Back uh, back when he was still going around, I suppose. Um, you had a little bit of trouble with him at one stage in a kendo stick, I believe, or a Singapore cane. As, as I, it was once. you do your homework, <laughs> but you know, it, uh, yes. But it turned out to be the best advice I ever got in my life in wrestling. I got in a match, and of course, uh, Gary Hart was managing him at the time. He had, mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of title he had, whatever. 
So we're in the ring. I turn around, taking my jacket off. Next thing I know, Abdullah runs across the ring and hits me in the head with a belt. Uh, normally, your 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 hand or it hits a leather part or something else. He was full force with the metal plate of this belt right. in the back of my head. I was seeing stars. I was feeling goofy already. So then Abdullah does his thing. One of them was he stands on you. Now, if a guy big is going to do that, usually you'll see they'll take some of the the, uh, the leverage off the ropes. They'll take some of the weight off. Yeah, Abdullah yes. didn't. He had one foot on your chest, one foot on your neck. And he just standing there, you know. Now he's and about he was a massive pounds, fella, yeah. So you can't breathe. So finally he gets off, oh, and then he right. steps on you again. So shit. So uh, so he threw me out of the out of the ring, and grabbed a kendo stick under the ring. Starts whipping me like a dog. Throws me in the ring. Whips me some more. Um. Now we're doing a three hour, three one hour, TV tapings. Yeah, so three episodes in, uh, in, 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 one in, month in Birmingham, that. Alabama, it was yeah. So, uh, so I uh, so I wrestled him, and then of course he beat me with this flying whatever you want to call it. And uh, then I wrestled again the third hour against Hacksaw Butch Reed. Huh? And, uh, and of course we watch it on TV after we get home the next week or whenever it's on when we can. And Butch Reed had me up in a bear hug. And you could see the welt marks on my back from where Abdullah had beat me three hours earlier. Yeah. With that. So I get back into the locker room. Here's where the advice came in. And uh, what you do after the match, you always thank the guy. I don't mm-hmm. care if he beats you up, if he kills you. Again, job security, professional, shake his hand, thanks for the match. So I went back. Abdullah was <clears throat> like at a desk, his feet up on the desk, smoking a cigar. And I went up, you know, thanks for the match and everything. And he says, you okay? I says, yeah. And uh, but that opened the door. I said, but you, Bob, beat me to death with that kendo stick. <laughs> so, so he looks at me. He's got the cigar. And he said, son, it's good for the business. Uh, right. <laughs> so I didn't pay attention, but I thought about that. You know, old school, when you're right in front of a fan, sometimes, you know, the, the, there's, there's not a big barrier. You know, you're you're mm-hmm. right there, and the fan is three to four feet away. If you're going to hit somebody, you hit them. If you're going to do something like beat somebody with a kendo stick, you better not be hitting the floor or or missing them or something like or pulling your things. You better whip them. That's mm-hmm. what he did, because that's the realism. That's the old school mentality. That's the storytelling. You know, make Abdullah. Be hated, make him look vicious, uncaring, and everything else. So when you're on TV or you're that close as we were to the fans, you got to lay it in. And he did, because it's good for the business. Otherwise, the guard, they're saying, oh, did you see this? You know, he had a razor blade in his hand, and I saw he threw it under the ring or or Mm. some kind of stupid stuff that the fans want to pick apart. You know, but when they can say, man, I was in the front row, he was whipping the dog crap out of him. You know, that that that's an impression. That's the storytelling that brings the credibility to Abdullah's um, reputation and his gimmick and what he's trying to be. It was my job to help him put that over. So but it's good for the business, which taught me anytime you're in that position, you're either going to hit somebody or you're going to let them hit you. But lay it in, you know, 
back then when you hit somebody with a chair or something, you'd smack them upside the head with it. Yeah. And sometimes it hurt. Now everybody's afraid of concussions and, and little crybabies don't want to get hurt. You know, and they, they spring a uh, spraying one of their fingers and they're off for three months, you know, uh, pulling in their million dollar a year salaries. Mm. So it, it was just, it, it was tougher back in those days, I guess. There's not a whole lot of tough guys out there anymore. Um, it's just very cookie cutter. You know, they're all doing the same high monkey spots. Yeah. They're all, there's no finishers because, you know, when Abdullah dropped that elbow, there was no getting up from that. When Ric Flair put you in a figure four, there was no reversing it. Um, and, and anything else. Now, everybody kicks out of everything, you know. You can put a guy off the top rope through a table, and he's still going to kick out a two. What's up with that, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. It, I'm, I'm lost gonna ask you about that, actually. Yes, and that's why it's so hard, I think, for us older guys to get invested um, as a fan into the newer products because yeah. it just – it just, there's, no, there's no one guy yet that I can see on the horizon that's going to take over. You know, like you had Bruno San Martino at one time, uh-huh. champion for like seven years. You had Hulk Hogan, who revolutionized the business. You had Ric Flair. You had guys like this that were Harley Race and, 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 and Terry Funk. You had guys like this that were just the, the, the top of the pinnacle. I mean, they were superstars. They were what wrestling is about. You waited for them to come to your town maybe two or three times a year, and it was a big thing. Now, titles change, faces change, names change. There's no one person, and I don't see any one person being built up to being that person that's going to carry the torch for professional wrestling into the future. No, no, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I spoke with a guest recently on a show about something very similar with regards to, um, I suppose, the differences in the modern products with certain moves, for example. Uh, one we discussed at length was the DDT. Once upon a time, that was it. If that gets hit, game over. Now it's almost like a transitional move. It's it, it's all something they do to move to the next spot. Um, I spend a lot of time watching wrestling with my ten-year-old daughter. Uh, she she's mad for it. She absolutely loves wrestling. Oh, great. She's a big AEW fan. Um, she absolutely adores it. New Japan, she watches and so on. She watches all sorts. Um, You're lucky. My daughter's careless. <laughs> but there are moments where now, even at 10 years old, she's turning to me and saying, well, why is he just waiting for that guy to jump off the top rope onto him? <laughs> and it, and, it, and if my 10-year-old, who is um, wrestling obsessed, and we're, we're, we're talking about the Young Bucks, really. The Young Bucks are, are absolute favorites. Um, if she's pointing out stuff that her favorites are doing, then to me, there's something wrong there. Well, a kid can see it. Yes, imagine adults. Mm. And if they pulled that kind of crap in the old days against a Wahoo McDaniel or somebody, uh, they would really take him to school. Yeah. You know, they would take in the ring. They would take him to school. You know, I've I've seen a couple of uh, instances where um, the the stars, for whatever the reason, got angry. Either a guy. Uh, screwed up a spot or, or forgot something you should have remembered. And, I mean, they, they really get stuff. They really beat them up. There's things on the Internet. You see a, a couple of matches where guys wouldn't sell a move. So they make them sell it for real. Yeah. Um, uh, so the, that happened. But, uh, again, the product. I think in the old days, wrestlers looked 
more like wrestlers. Now they look like bodybuilders. They're good looking, mm -hmm. super athletes. Okay. I respect everything they do, but I don't think it's professional wrestling. That's the difference. Everybody does the same moves. Nobody has a finisher. How many times does Jeff Hardy in a match, for instance, go for his twist of fate? Yep. And misses it. He hits it once or twice out of 10, you know, mm. they're always pushing him off to the ropes or something like that. He loses it. Um, Again, you put somebody through a table and they're going to kick out. How often is that going to happen? You know, mm. uh, you mentioned the young bucks. How believable is it for these guys to be big, tough world champion tag teams? And they weigh what? Maybe 175 pounds a piece. Mm. You know, put them in there with the road warriors or the, the, the Legion of doom or the, uh, uh, any of those other big, a couple of 300 pounders against these 150 pound kids, you know, yep. it, it takes away the believability. Now. Exactly. It take my wife and I were watching, I don't know, I, I flip between AEW and NXT because as a fan, I can't get invested in either one of them. Okay, so you sort of share. I watch them, yeah. but I can't get invested, okay, in in because there's really no big storylines. Um, you got Orange Cassidy puts his hands in his pocket. What's up with that? You know? <laughs> we watched the match. I said, okay, now watch. How many real wrestling moves do you see in this match? One, two, you see punches, you see kicks. Everybody in the world does a super kick, mm. you know. Uh, Shawn Michaels, when he did it, that was a finish. Now yep. everybody yep. does it, and it's not a finish for nobody. And he won uh, world titles with that. Yes, I know it. Isn't that something? Um, so the believability, and, and I said I can't get invested because, first of all, there is no superstar that gets my attention that I can't wait to tune in next week and see what he's going to do. Um, the ones I think are the most entertaining is I like the fiend and I hope they don't bury him and screw him up. Okay. He's got a pretty good gimmick going as long as they don't turn it into more of a comic book figure, yeah, which they're starting to do a little bit. You know, I like the way he transitions from Bray Wyatt, just in his facial expression yeah. into the fiend, you know, just like that. That's old school. That's storytelling. That's wow. What is this? Who's but he's like the only one. Mm. The original gimmicks, you know, like he had The Undertaker and whatever. He had a long ride on that 30 years, which is ending, you know, right now. But uh, uh, how many gimmicks are out there? And how many talented guys do they switch gimmicks on all the time? You know, they've had five, six, seven different names in their career. And which one stands out or what are you known for? So how can you transition from your wrestling life into the next part if you want to stay involved in this business like conventions and now the mm -hmm. virtuals and stuff nobody knows who you are or who you were Barry Darso the Repo Man uh, all those other things you know uh, one of the Russians and then he's uh, uh, one of Demolition yep. yeah but what about Barry Darso nobody knows that name anymore <laughs> you know? they'll know Axe and Smash but they don't know Barry Darso uh, Terry Taylor, when they turned him into the Red Rooster, remember that? Yes. WWE. And Owen Hart into the Blue Blazer. Mm. Um, it's all cartoony got... gimmicks, isn't it? It's all, yeah. you know, which I can understand because it, it can appeal to the, the very young kids then. But I think you need something else on the show to captivate those who are a bit older. Or when these young kids get to a certain age, you're going to lose them. 
Well, yes, I think that's where where they might be missing things a little bit. I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I don't know that end of the business. But at one time, if you remember, they went from wrestling, and then Vince McMahon kind of turned the corner in the entertainment world. Now you've got. Uh, cartoons on television on Saturday afternoons. Now you got uh, comic books. Now you've got all this other stuff. So they've graduated into the entertainment end of it and gotten away from the wrestling end of it. Yeah. Um, which entertained and got the young kids hooked. Okay. Your daughter, 10 years old. I love the young Bucks. She'll be a Bucks fan for as long as they're around, probably. Yeah, I imagine but so. <laughs> but it's going to be another six, seven, eight, ten years before she can afford to buy a ticket to see him live. Oh, so what do you do in the next eight or ten years? You know, you're, you're they're they're trying to groom these kids to be future long term fans for the future of the business, but in the meantime, the business is dying a little bit today. Now, the pandemic certainly didn't help it. Um, the lack of the competition in territories. I mean, basically, you've got NXT, you've got uh, AEW, and you got the WWE. That's really it. Now you've got mm-hmm. another one. You got New Japan, you got NWA, Power and Elijah, Ring of Honor, but none of these are mainstream television anymore. To me, if they're going to be big, they're going to have to be mainstream. And that means anytime you turn on your TV, you can find it. You don't have to subscribe. You don't have to look up a YouTube channel. You don't have to do anything else. So those three are the only ones. And they all start out, oh, we're going back to a studio field or we're going back to an old school field. But yet a few months into it, and AEW is a classic example, they turn into WWE. Yeah. They got goofy characters. They got stuff that don't make sense. Where's the old school? Where's the wrestling part of it? You know? And so, it's the wrestling part of it that, that hooked me in as a kid. It's hooked my daughter in initially. Uh, obviously, it hooked you in as well back in Detroit to look, watching Killer Kowalski and, and Dick the Bruiser and so on. Storylines. Storylines. Exactly, yeah. You couldn't wait to the next show to see what happens. Now, it, it just doesn't matter. There's no building of feuds mm. and if they do then they how many times did you see john cena against randy orton you know and now you know you've got orton and drew mcintyre and and they're doing the same thing same finishes no story no gimmick just yep going that's what's old school thinking is that's what's lacking that's why people can't get invested in the product as much what you say makes a huge, huge deal of sense there. It really does. Um, as we sort of come to a close here today, then, I've, I think I've kept you long enough. Thank you very, very much. For oh, this is stuff. fun. <laughs> um, there's a couple of quick things I wanted to ask you about. Um, first of all, I, 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 meant, I heard you mention previously elsewhere about when um, Hulk Hogan sort of jumped across to the black and white and the NWO side of things, and you did something similar uh, yourself. Yes. How, how did you go, come up with that idea? What made you want to transition into being, I suppose, the Hollywood version? Um, and well, how, did it, how did it compare to doing the, the red and yellow, I guess? It's much easier to be a heel than it is to be a babyface. Okay. Always. It's easier. If you're out of breath or blowed up, as we say, 
you can do something to the other guy, choke him or whatever else, and you can buy yourself time. If you're a babyface, you can't. You got to keep things going. You got to keep things moving. So with the Hogan thing, like I said, I started out as Randy Franklin. I was never a Randy. I was never a relative of Hulk Hogan or anything. That was bestowed upon me. I didn't get it. I didn't look for it. I didn't want it. It just Mm -hmm. happened. Actually, it never really happened until about a year or so ago, the biggest part. But when I started, these little promoters and these little bars I was wrestling at, they liked the Hogan-type look, the Hogan thing. So they wanted me to be his uncle, his cousin, his nephew, his brother, whatever. You got a few different titles over the years. Yeah, and, and the showbiz part, I'll be whatever you want. You know, you're paying me whatever you want to do. I don't care. So I went with that. Now, I always... I only had one set of gear my whole career. I had one black velvet robe that's in most of my promo pictures with sequins and a turquoise um, lining. I had turquoise trunks and turquoise boots. That was Mm -hmm. my thing. I never had more. Then finally, I bought a pair of yellow trunks like Hogan had. Just everything else was the same. So uh, I... I followed his lead without telling people I'm following his lead, you know. So when he went NWO, turned into a heel, um, I gradually turned into a heel. You know, I'd turn on a partner or do something yeah. that, that made me mean in a little town because we were doing the same towns month after month. Not WCW stuff, but I'm talking about the indie stuff or the outlaw yes, stuff. Yes. So, uh, so when he turned to heel, I did. Then when he turned back to the red and yellow, then I turned back to the good guy. Again, I saw the light, you know. <laughs> so I followed his his lead, and uh, which is why I never got any heat from Hulk Hogan or his people or his representatives. A year ago, I was invited to do a convention, the big event in New York. Okay. And uh, the vendor that brought me in um, – I said, well, you know, I didn't know anything about it because I never did one before. Now, here I've been out of the business, out of sight for 30 years, 25 years. He said, just do do the the Hogan thing. I says, okay. So I had some merchandise made up, like this. It's from Hulkamania, Randomania. Randomania, yep. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I had them done in black, in yellow, and in red. I bought the uh, yellow and red. Uh, spandex tights. I dyed my beautiful turquoise boots yellow. Took 13 coats to get them covered. (laughs) Why? And and they look like new, yeah. And I have a a yellow weightlifting belt that I wore Mm -hmm. around it. Same kind of outfit Hogan did because that's what the vendor, the promoter, the boss wanted me to do. Yeah. So on the internet, when they're advertising, you know, uh, coming to the event and my pictures and that, it's funny because they had my old school pictures in my turquoise robe and everything, and now they're selling me in, you know, in in, in this kind of gimmick. Yeah. So, uh, but but it worked. So that's how I really kind of took took on the the Hogan persona as far as the way that I would dress now at these conventions. The people want to be with a Hogan. If you want the old Randy Hogan, well, that's fine. I take the sunglasses off. You still see the face and everything else. 
if you want the Hulk Hogan thing, I've dropped the sunglasses down. You know, I'll uh, different days I'll wear different, either the yellow and red, uh-huh. which he's famous for, the red and yellow, or I'll wear the black. I've had, um, I have T-shirts made instead of NWO, they say uh, HWO, your Hogan. Yeah, so Sydney's yeah. <laughs> So, um, so anyways, I'm at the the uh, the convention, and right across the table from me is uh, Jimmy Hart, who's Hulk's best friend in real life. Uh-huh. And again, I'm just a fan. I'm a kid in a candy shop. So at the end, I walked across the hall. I said, Jimmy, can I get a picture with you? He said, sure, brother. Come on. He's like he's like a, a rodent on crack. I mean, he is just <laughs> all over the place. He's like 74, 73 yeah. years old. Man, the guy's got energy, just like he did way back in the day when he's jumping around. So I got a picture then, and I, again, I, I, I very humbly thanked him for it. And I said, you know, I, I was a little bit hesitant. I said, because of the gimmick, you know, I didn't want to go into it. And he said, you know, he said, I talk to Terry Hulk every day. He said, we have business interests outside of wrestling. And he said, you know, not that you're the topic of conversation. He said, but your name has come up before. And I want you to know that we appreciate everything you have done as far as not getting involved in any controversies, you know, as far as the drugs, as far as getting arrested for anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always been, other than the steroid scandal that he got wrapped up in with Vince, you know, many, many zillion years ago, um, and some recent things, he uh, he kept it too, you know, say your prayers, take your vitamins type of thing. Yeah. And I always did. And I never did anything to embarrass him or Hogan. And uh, he said, you know, he said, we appreciate it. He said, I love the gimmick. He said, you do what you're doing. He said, and, you know, we're like, we're 100% behind you. And that's the first uh, validity, I guess, I got that, that it's okay with Hulk. You know, it's okay. Here's his best friend, his manager, yeah. the icon, Jimmy Hart, saying, you go, man. We're behind you. It's okay. So... That I was the whole the whole Hogan well. thing. I followed his lead without ever saying I'm a relative mm-hmm. or anything else. The only negative thing that ever happened happened to me about three or four months ago. Um, a one of the the guys who do graphics that put the pictures together and everything did one unbeknownst to me. He had a picture of me and a picture of Hulk Hogan, and it was the background was the old WCW Bash in the Beach. Okay, and yeah. it said the dream match that never was Randy Hogan versus Hulk Hogan. And he sent it to me. I said, Wow, this is really neat. I like that. So I had some made, you know, to sell as an additional picture. And a month later, I get a, a note from, from Hogan's uh, representative, okay. I guess, a cease and desist. Right. He says, he says, well, I've seen this before. He says, and we let it slide. He said, but it's coming to our attention more now that we have to ask you to, you know, don't use anything with his image or likeness anymore, or we'll have to get our attorneys involved. Blah, blah, blah. So again, I wrote a very apologetic letter back and, and pulled those off of my, uh, my marketing stuff. But I still have some left, so I still have a personal appearance. Get one out. I was going to say, what happened? Yeah, yeah. Somebody (laughs) had. What happened is somebody bought one, and I signed it, you know, and sent it back to them. And they took it to Hogan's Beach Shop, 
and tried to get him to sign it also. Right. So they, so they say, what is this? We don't know nothing about this. We don't get a piece of this action. So that's what generated it, somebody trying to get mm-hmm. both signatures. So so that's the only negative thing I ever had to do with the whole Hogan persona. Which I suppose isn't a, a, a massive problem either, is it? It's, it's kind of understandable where they're, they're coming from on the one hand, I guess. Sure. Um, uh, the idea that you've still got some of these somewhere fascinates me. If there's any way of me getting hold of one from you, that'd be fantastic at some stage. Maybe I'll drop you a message or something. But <laughs> drop, me, drop me a message. No problem. No problem. <laughs> Actually, I have, uh, I probably have about uh, 20 of them left, along okay. with some 11 by 14s. I mean, I was going all out on this Hogan versus Hogan thing, you know. I was all excited. And then I had yeah. to pull the plug, so geez. Bash at the beach as well. No, great setting when it was outdoors and stuff. Or, or they had the beach it, it setting. It really is a good yeah. graphic. This guy was really talented the way he put it together. <laughs> and I had no knowledge until he sent it to me. Yeah. Oh, why? <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Oh, you mentioned there about the steroid scandal um, and uh, Hogan and McMahon and so on. Um, have you ever had any interactions with the likes of McMahon or potentially Bischoff when you were in WCW? Did you cross paths with him at all? Oh, Eric Bischoff, well, yeah, he was wonderful to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, Hogan and I, um, we crossed paths. When he came to WCW, um, I wasn't doing anything. I had moved down to Florida, bought a restaurant and that. And when he was in WWF, of course, I was in WCW. And I found out later that that was job security for me because the Monday Night Wars, WWF versus WCW, on Monday nights, Hogan was their big hero. That was their mm. main thing. WCW's attitude was, well, we have Randy Hogan, and we're going to show you how superior we are over Hogan's, which is why I got jobbed out all the time. Yeah, you know? I, I, I Because I was yeah, a I Hogan, I had it. I'm one of the only jobbers up there that never had to change his name. A lot of them, they changed their names or whatever, you know, for whatever mm-hmm. the reasons. But they wanted me to keep that gimmick so they could job me out, which I didn't care, as a, as a sign of superiority over WWF at the time. Yeah. We laughed at that. Me and, me and Barry Horwitz, who was the kind of jobber, the, the, the Randy Hogan of the WWF at the time. Yes. <laughs> he lives by me here. We've gotten to be pretty pretty close. And we laugh about stuff like that. So, in fact, there was a vendor that wanted to put us together on a little tour, wrestling each other. WWF alumni versus WCW, but neither Barry and I are in the mood to uh, to have a match anymore. So we just do conventions oh, together I'd and stuff. To see it. I'd love to see it. <laughs> nah, you never know. We might work some little thing out someday. Just drop the leg and pick up the one, two, three, yeah? <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. Um, and I just want to do that. I just had my ankle replaced. Uh, okay. Uh, in September, so I can't really do anything. I've had I just started walking on it, started bracing that since September, and it'll be probably February or so before I can actually be somewhat back to normal. So mm. then I can practice on dropping the leg. Yeah, look like Barry. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> One last quick thing then: Did you ever have yes, any uh, interactions at all with? Um, the higher ups up north, as they call it, Vince McMahon and so on. Um, was there any ever contacts from from that sort of way? Never. I did a few um, a few one offs or individual jobs for the federation when they come to town once in a while, just to do a a house show or something, a job. 
Mm-hmm. But other than that, which Jay Strongbow was uh, the guy that handled all that. That's about as high up him and Gerald Briscoe at the time. So I was very close to them. George Animal Steel, they were all uh, the big wigs. But as far as uh, getting uh, to Vince or Stephanie or, or them, there was no interaction whatsoever. So that, but that, that, that's the idea where uh, a lot of the internet stuff um, is not all accurate, you know, yeah. as, as these keyboard warriors sometimes think it is. So, yeah, no, these, you know, that's why we appreciate guys like you that uh, that actually talk to us face to face, person to person, and get the real stories. You know, instead of the made-up ones on the internet that mm-hmm. everybody lives by in that. So I, I don't understand why everybody does not turn into a, uh, your podcast in that on a on a daily basis to get the updates, to get the real truth from the real guys that live it, you know, other than yeah. the ones that are making up the stories. Yeah, uh, it's, it's brilliant talking to, well, talking to yourself today has been fantastic. The, the stories are awesome. I, I enjoy talking wrestling with with anybody it's just it's just a big passion of mine so hearing stories from first hand from people who have been in the business whether in the uk um i spoke with somebody who's been out to japan to work a while back and and speaking with yourself now from um an earlier era um wcw and uh, i mean i can remember seeing you in the early 90s on itv television uh, on a saturday afternoon in the uk here on wcw worldwide and my mum used used to record it for me when i'd go off to the football come back and i'd I'd have my tea and and watch that some of the best days of my life fantastic stuff um okay then well again mr hogan i want to say thank you hugely for sparing some time out of your day today to to discuss wrestling with me um if simon you... thank you for for keeping an old guy like me relevant oh no no sir no, not we, at all. <laughs> you never know how much we appreciate it some guys take it for granted for granted some guys have attitudes but then there's others like myself that that, that try to stay humble and appreciate the fans and the things that you're doing to to, to keep the old feel alive and uh, and the history of, of wrestling and and teaching these young kids what it really used to be all about and, and just can't thank you enough. No, well, again, thank you very much for coming on. I've really enjoyed it. It's, it's been brilliant. Um, if you want to just take a moment and let everyone know who's listening, where they can find you online and, and your merchandise and so on. Love to. Really simple. Everything I have is on Facebook. And just look up for Randy Hogan. You'll find my picture there. There's a couple of people, Randy Hogan's. Or the easiest way is go to Randy, Randy Hogan's stuff. You want Randy Hogan's stuff? Go on go Facebook to Randy, to Randy Hogan's stuff. stuff. <laughs> and I got a website. Everything is listed. I got, uh, in fact, I'll have your, uh, I'll have this podcast on there. Yeah. Um, I have my merchandise out there. Little updates on the ankle surgery I had and, and uh, just a little informative stuff. You know, and the other one, Randy Hogan or uh, Randy Mule, M-U-E-H-L, which is my real last name. Uh, I got stuff out there about my family and my kids and my wife and my dog and and everything else. Uh, um, if somebody wants to reach out to me on Messenger or something, I always answer. So I'm, I'm very, very uh, accessible to the fans yeah. and I love every one of them and I, I humbly appreciate everything and like I said especially to guys like you that uh, keep me alive well, keep me again, relevant thank you very and conventions much, when the conventions when this COVID crap is out of the way you know and there's a convention in your town I'm going to be there so come out and see me come out and meet me come out and buy some stuff 
Yeah, definitely. And what I'll do is as well, when this episode comes out, um, I'll tag all your Facebook links and so on to the episode so people can find it via my stuff as well. So, yeah, brilliant stuff. And thank you very much for the entertainment you gave me when I was younger. And thank you very oh, much for you. the time you've spent with me today. Absolutely fantastic. It's been an absolute, an absolute joy discussing wrestling with you. I've really, really enjoyed it. So thank you very much for your time, sir. Oh, my pleasure, sir. Thank you. And I'll speak with you again soon. Cheers. Mm-hmm.